we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. John, you're looking well. Thank you. I have been I, I've been assaulted by insects this week, <gasps> Andy. Um, bees. Uh, I keep bees, as you Nature's know. But I, I was going to collect a swarm that was already hived up by this yeah. elderly, rather marvellous man called Jim Wiggins, who is one of those people who uh, Jim's been keeping bees forever and, of course, never has any veil or anything. Just go, little bees, they'll be fine. You know, just get that, you know, stuff it in grass in the front of the hive, strip, strip a, a bit of baling twine over the top and you can take it home. But come in the evening, he said, don't come when they're out. So I said, no, of course, I, I know bees well enough not to try and do anything with them when they're active. So get there and of course it was an evening but it was warm sultry and the bees were still there were still quite a few of them around the hive so i had a sort of light linen shirt on no veil no gloves so i just thought oh there can't be that many of them started stuffing the immediately got stung on my hand and then more got one caught in my beard another one stung me on it i'm looking at your so cheek my, 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 my you on face the, cheek. the one side of my face swelled up my hand was like a balloon yeah i mean i'm look, looking a lot better than i looked yesterday but the only problem was i found the antihistamine, <laughs> I don't know if you've had this, it makes you really sleepy. Yeah. So I don't know, we're about to talk about a collection of stories. I don't know whether the stories are, that I've actually read all the, the stories. <laughs> I read a lot of, of these stories this week and I'm not sure whether I'm actually remembering them correctly or they're sort of merged into dreams. <laughs> but maybe that's the effect that the author uh, wanted. And you? Uh, you've been sick as a dog this I've week. I've been sick as a dog this week. There's not much to add. I'm read as much Listen, of this. Listen, you can't see this, but Andy fever. is looking. Andy is looking. He's, he's looking emaciated, pale. Even yeah, even my wife, who has encouraged me for many years to lose a bit of weight, was, was clicking a disapproving tongue and going, "God's sake, eat a pizza! <laughs> God's sake, look at you! You've, you've overdone it now because of." Uh, Did you anyway, get? Have you hit the target weight? I have. I've, I'm no longer dieting. Um. But you might be dying. <laughs> yeah, sadly, <laughs> I might, the diet might be all too successful, straight I'm to sure zero. I'm, oh, I'm, you're only going to look this good for a very short period yeah. of time. <laughs> but what, what a way to go! But you know what? You need, last. You, need, you need a hearty weekend away in the countryside, recording backlisted at Port Elliot. It's, oh well, we can't. We're going on too long. We can't talk about no, that yet. Uh, Shall we start? Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in Wisconsin at dusk in the early 1950s, a man walking towards us, his shirt removed and his body covered in what looked like coloured tattoos. But as we draw closer, we see that the images covering his skin, rockets, fountains, people, are moving. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Joining us today is Sam Leith. Hello, Sam. Hello, Andy. I have met Hello, you before. Sam. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Sam is the literary editor of The Spectator and the host of their books podcast. They're excellent books podcast. It is very Thank good. you very, very much. Good and his most recent book is Right to the Point. Right to the Point. W-R. I never choose my own titles. <laughs> How to be clear, correct and persuasive on the page. And he's currently trying to write a month-by-month chronicle of 2019 in Rhyme Royal. What is Rhyme Royal? Forgive my ignorance. I don't Rhyme know. Rhyme Royal. Well, I realised that nobody was going to take 10,000... 000- 
lines of heroic couplets, you know, the appetite has, <laughs> has gone. So I thought I'd, I, I, I'd think of a stanza instead and, and the stanza that I wanted to do, well, I, th- I thought Alden's letter to Lord Byron and so I went, what's he done that in? It must be the Byron stanza, but it wasn't. It's Rhyme Royal, which is A-B-A-B-B-C-C. And I'm now really fucking sick. <laughs> Trying to find rhymes for Farage. Oh, oh God, yes. That's... And, when, and when do you deliver? Well, I deliver in the second week of November, which means that December might be slightly thin <laughs> in terms of incident. <laughs> yeah. Our second guest is Jennifer Lucy Allen. Hello. Hello. Jen is a writer on sound and music who has just submitted a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> It's on, okay, you can laugh. <laughs> thank you. A PhD on foghorns. That is correct. And that is an instrumental part of why you joined us today to talk about whoever we're going about to talk yes, about. Yes, it right? is. We'll yeah. explain in due course. Um, and she'll be turning the PhD into a book for Lee Braxton's new imprint at Orion. She runs the record label Arclight Editions, is an occasional presenter of BBC Radio 3's Late Junction, and writes regularly for The Wire, The Guardian, The Quietus, and others. And the book that Sam and Jen are here to talk to us about is The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury, a collection of 18 stories, first published by Doubleday in 1951. <laughs> That's which... not what it says on your <laughs> script, appropriately <laughs> enough. It says first published by Doubleday in the year 1,009,521. Typing, typing this at the last minute, surely not. Uh, first published by Doubleday in 1951, which was nominated for the International Fantasy Award in 1952. But before we plunge into... Interstellar Freefall. Andy, what have you been reading? I've been reading a book by Laura Cumming called On Chapel Sands, subtitled My Mother and Other Missing Persons. Laura has been our guest on Backlisted, so we must state uh, that interest. She was here to talk about Jane Gardens A Long Way from Verona, which is uh, one of my favourite books that we have done on this podcast over the years. And we also talked about her last book, The Vanishing Man, about Velazquez, on episode five of Backlisted, way back when we did Christy Mulry's own double entry with David Quincy. And that book had just come out. Amazing. That's how long we've been going. 90 episodes ago. So this book came out a couple of weeks ago. A bit more, maybe a month. I reviewed this for Sam at The Spectator. and (laughs) It's getting very incestuous. uh, Well, I was really blown away by it, you know. The book's been getting uniformly brilliant reviews. You don't have to trust me. You can trust Professor John Carey or you can trust Craig Brown or you can trust Blake Morrison, who I th- have, I think, responded to a real culmination in what Laura Cumming has been doing in her writing up to this point. That was certainly how I felt about the book. It seemed that she had found a way of marrying her skills as an art critic with a personal story that she had been waiting many years to write. It felt like the kind of book that somebody limbers up for by writing other books, and then they get to do the one they really want to do. I don't want to give too much of it away. It starts on Chapel Sands, as the title suggests, with a young girl uh, playing about 100 years ago, away from her parents. When her parents look up, she isn't there anymore. And she turns up several days later in a village... She's returned to her parents. Everybody knows what happened. Nobody will say anything about it. And it takes approximately 50 years for anyone to begin to tell the girl, who is Laura Cummings' mother, what happened to her, not only in those three days, but why she was taken and why nobody would talk about it. So the book takes superficially that kind of mystery story And what Laura does is apply a kind of art critic's forensic eye to family photographs, to her mother's written accounts of what happened, and to history and local history and local archive, to build up a picture, to try and find out what happened, who her mother is, and therefore who she is. And she doesn't solve that mystery until the final page of the book. 
What I loved about it is it was seemed like the work of someone who was extremely good at what they do. <laughs> and every type of writing in the book is A grade. And the structure of the book is magnificent. It sounds like I've presented it as a gimmick there, the holding back, the reveal till the very last page of the book, but it's the culmination of the book, of the themes of the book more than the narrative of the book. It's absolutely wonderful. That's why I don't want to say too much about it. But I'd just like to read a, a, a little bit here about um, certain chapters are based around paintings and Bruegel's landscape with the fall of Icarus is a painting that was in the Cummings house first image my mother ever owned it was cut out of an art book and stuck on a piece of cardboard and put on the wall and there is a sentence here that I think is as brilliant and true and easy and profound as anything that I've read this year so I'll just give you a taste my parents had hundreds of images in the house photographs scissors from newspapers reproductions pinned to walls postcards from distant galleries sent by their friends Growing up, I collected these in a shoebox, beginning with the cave paintings of Lascaux and ending, I seem to think, with Surat's A Sunday on La Grande Jatte, sent by an American student of my father's all the way from Chicago. But the Bruegel was special, sacred, a world both light and dark and mesmerising, plainly a narrative that any child could follow, and yet powerfully strange even to adults. It hung in the hall and then in the kitchen, and eventually in the small cottage in the Scottish borders where my parents later went to live. We looked at it by night and by day, by chance and on purpose, on the way to and from school, over meals, on our way upstairs to bed. In the cottage, it hung directly above the old table, shoved against the damp wall in the kitchen, where we could stare at it while eating Heinz tomato soup and Marmite on toast. We see pictures in time and place, and in the context of our own lives, we cannot see them otherwise. And then she goes on to say, Landscape with the fall of Icarus was an object as well as an image. Now that, that is the phrase that for me I thought, whoa, that's such a, sim such a simple idea, such a deep idea, so profoundly expressed, right, right at the heart of what the book is about. What is the book about? The book is how we interpret imagery of all kinds in our lives, our day-to-day -day lives, and in our histories of ourselves, our families, who we think we are, even if who we think we are isn't right because we're not interpreting the picture correctly. Uh, and that is published by Chateau and Willis <laughs> for £18.99. <laughs> John, what have you been reading this week? Uh, well, I've been reading a collection of poetry by Jay Bernard called Surge, also, as it happens, published by Chatter and Windus, which I first heard about or was made aware of um, on a start the week with Kate Clanchy, whose book about teaching I raved about on a recent backlisted. And Jay Bernard was on that programme and read a couple of pieces and talked about this collection. And it, it struck me very forcefully as something that I would love to, to read, then went and bought it and read it. And the background to it is an actual historical event Jay Bernard was researching at the George Padmore Institute, looking into the events of 1981, the new crossfire in which 12 young black teenagers were burnt to death. Not enough people know about what the, the new crossfire. That's one of the reasons for the book. Not enough people know that it wasn't investigated well. Not enough people know that it led to a, a massive march across Blackfriars Bidge, which was which was Apparently, the journalists were leaning out of Fleet Street and spitting on them as they went past. That year was also the year shortly after that that, that, that that Brixton riots happened. So the book is on one level an act of uh, of investigation, of looking into the facts of the case, and uh, indeed through the volume, the first-hand testimonies of people who were there, of the relatives of the, of the teenagers who died. So there's a, there's a research element to it. But what Jay Bernard does brilliantly is link that with now, links it with Brexit, links it with the Grenfell Tower, links it with the, the Windrush uh, scandal. So it's both a, an attempt to preserve and investigate the, uh, the wrong that was done in 1981, but also links it in a way to the, the same problems that are occurring now. So it's a very contemporary book. 
out of the amazing uh, kind of culture that we have of performance poetry and of poetry being read and discussed and shared far more than it's it's been, I think, in in a generation, this volume seems to me to to to, to work as well. Listening to Start the Week and Jay Bernard reading is is extraordinary because it's there's a lot of music, there's a lot of patois, there's a lot of stuff that you would expect to come from somebody who's an accomplished performance poet. But these poems are also exquisite and precise and complex and the kind of attempt to tell a historical truth through kind of the refracted different experiences, different voices, different registers. They say about the difficulty of, of finding words that we are facing an adjectival crisis as much as anything else. How do we speak and from what position? And how can we ensure that we are heard not only by those who oppose us, but by our allies who are also lost for words? So the book is an attempt to give words back to the dead. They say, I am haunted by this history, but I also haunt it back. That sense of them going back into history and reconstructing it is... is I'll read you one short poem, which gives you, a, it gives you the flavour. Hiss. Going in when the firefighters left was like standing on a black beach with the sea suspended in the walls, suit suds like a conglomerate of flies. You kick the weeds and try to piece it back. Fractured shell, a bone, bloated antennae, flesh thigh spindle, gangrenous pet fish, an eye or a tiny glaring stone, a seal's tongue, or the sour sinew yoking front and hind fin, vertebrae or fetters, bedsheet or slave skin. The black is coming in from the cold, rolling up the beach walls, looking for light. It will enter you if you stand there and spend the rest of its time inside you, asking what it was, what it was, what it was, in a vivid hiss heard only by your bones. I really love this book. Yeah. In my summer-long attempt to read all poetry uh, <laughs> ever written, <laughs> uh, I picked this up in foils in Stratford in Westfield. Hello. <laughs> if you the lovely booksellers there who said very nice things about Batlisted, hello if you're listening. I said I would say on air that you're the best bookshop in London and you are the best bookshop in London this week. Thank you very much. Uh, This this week. week, (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't interrogate it. Uh, So they had a copy of Surgeon Stock. I picked it up and actually, John, I totally agree with you. Uh, What you were saying about it bringing the best of both performance poetry and I don't know what term is not going to offend someone authentic poetry, well, I think which, poetry about the which page, there was a great row yeah. last year. It seems to me that's exactly I mean, what this, this book does. It manages to uh, do both those things brilliantly. Well, yeah, one of the, the glories of it, I think, is that it, it, it's beautiful on the page, the line breaks, knowing how to lay a poem out on the page, something I'm sure, Sam, you're, you're in the middle of, of, of doing that right now. I mean, it's... Right it's formal verse, it's going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just, just keep going to the oh, end I've of the line. I've got 14 syllables, right? Turn over the line. I haven't offended you, Sam, but surely it's you who are uniting <laughs> the traditions of performance poetry and, uh, and traditional verse. But, yeah, precisely, yeah, yes. Okay, no, we'll start. put that on the front jacket. We're both also big fans of The Perseverance by Raymond Antropos. I, I think mm-hmm. there is... Uh, I do feel that, that there is a lot of um, ex- extraordinary poetry being written and uh, Serge is, I mean, I think it was Ali Smith said, there's an almost an Auden-like simplicity to it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, you know, as we say, simple is the hardest thing to do yeah. in, in anything, certainly in poetry. But, um, yeah, no, hugely recommended. We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. I don't care if the writer can't write. I don't give a damn what the style is. Teachers and librarians forget the function of literature. It's to pull us like taffy. To, to raise our souls, to make us want to live forever. Go. 600 short stories. Well. Or more. Or less. We or just fewer. don't, nobody knows. I think that's the answer. 27 novels. It's, it's, well, again, there's a, possibly. it's a, yeah, possibly. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a. Your, and your, that one of the novels is, a, is really a kind of thinly veiled autobiography, is it not? We're talking, we're, we're, we're talking about Ray Bradbury. The great, I mean, I think we can call him the great Ray Bradbury. 
He would say. He would agree. <laughs> he would definitely agree. <laughs> he would agree. I would agree, Dan. Um, and we are talking about The Illustrated Man, which is just one collection of the many collections of stories that the uh, great Ray Bradbury produced during his career. And this was the suggestion of Sam. Sam, when did you first read The Illustrated Man or the stories in The Illustrated Man or the stories in the British edition of The Illustrated Man, which are different from the stories in the American edition of The Illustrated Man? I mean, even, even the thing about Ray Bradbury is even understanding what one book is <laughs> is a challenge because the contents are quite slippery. They are. That was a very long question. Um, <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> I remember, I mean, it, it, exactly as you say, they are, Ray Bradbury is a vast, swirling kind of ocean of bits and pieces of which each book is a kind of ladleful. Um, and I started, I have a really clear memory. I was sort of probably 11 or 12. It's my parents' old house. There was a playroom with a wooden floor and bookshelves all around the wall, which was where my parents had, you know, this huge collection of 1970s paperback books into which I delved, and that was where I discovered all those books that nobody reads anymore, like, you know, oh Harold Robbins, where I learned about sex. Coming up on helpful. <laughs> I'm sure coming up on that list. You know, people like Robertson Davis. Coming up on that list. Lots of John Fowles. You know, coming up on that I mean, list. essentially a kind of backlisted archive. Yeah. <laughs> Pre- Pre-cog archive. Exactly. Like Pre-cog archive. And one of the things I found, actually, I think my dad directed me to him, was this amazing two-volume collection, a kind of large double ladle full of Bradbury, which was... I don't, it was, again, 70s paperback publisher, was it kind of Corgi or was it Galanx or Fontana or, or you know, Grafton, which we've got the edi- yeah. Illustrated yeah. Man edition we've got here. You know, one of those sort of semi-forgotten paperback publishers of the 70s and 80s, and it was a two-volume collected stories of Ray Bradbury, and I remember it so clearly because there was a... Volume one was red and yellow and had a big yellow numeral one and red background. And volume two was green on yellow. And they were like nothing I'd read before at all. So I come, you know, to talk about Bradbury, not praise him with a sort of austere literary critical hat on, but as a straightforward fan. I mean, what I loved about him was that each story, he didn't have a sort of, Bradbury world or Bradbury universe in which a sort of self-consistent mythos in which all these stories took place. Every story invented a world from scratch and they shared lots of elements, they shared lots of themes, but there were horror stories, there were fantasy stories, there were lots of stories about Mars or space or dinosaurs. It was basically for a kind of geeky teenager like me, like comics, like Stephen King, suddenly this was a motherload. That was a justifiably long answer. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> Jen, you said something when we were warming up about Bradbury, which I thought was brilliant in terms of... It's kind of relating to what Sam, how Sam was just defining Ray Bradbury then. I wonder if you could lead us into that by telling well, us how you first read Ray Bradbury or when, when and why. Well, I'm not sure if this is what you were thinking of, but actually Sam's answer there links to where I remember reading him first. And I think I was a lot older because my first full-time job was in a huge retail park bookshop in Stockport, <laughs> which in, in South southeast Manchester, um, the Peel Centre, um, and it was a Borders and it had a Starbucks oh, yeah. in and it was the most exotic thing ever. And, you know, it stayed open till like 10pm. And anyway, I got a I have been straight out of I my was, I have been in that very You've shop. Been, have yeah, you? I, been, I, mean, I used it doesn't to work exist in the back. It, it does exist not exist anymore. anymore. Sadly. And I worked, my first full-time job after working in pubs and restaurants and stuff, as an 18-year-old, was working in the inventory department in the back there. Uh, and so we took the books off the pallets and put stickers on them and put them on the shelves. But everyone in that back room when I was 18 was a bit older than me and had various specialisms. And I took to borrowing things from people. But actually what I really got into was kind of ploughing through the like classics of sci-fi. But in terms of I was really going headfirst into H.G. Wells. And I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 and John Wyndham. And I still read a lot of sci-fi. That's my favourite leisure mm. time reading. Um, but th- while I was there, I also used to read the, uh, look after the children's section. And people would come in and say, 
Um, I also looked after the children's section in Islington Borders for a while. Um, I oh, hope you never brought your children to my story time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish I could go back in time. Maybe I can. Maybe but I people would come in and say, my child reads a lot and they've read all the things from their age, they've read all the things from young adult. What can I send them to? And I used to send people straight to Ray Bradbury and John Wyndham and H.G. Wells because they were these stories that had so much going on but they have absolutely nothing X-rated in them, ever. They're very mm, kind of puritanical, and they're all about ideas, and there's not actually that much complex psychology. And, and they are often, not clearly in that quantity, not always, but they are often either about children or they are, or they are seen through a, the eye of a child. That's one Definitely. of Bradbury's recurring theme so i can see and for adolescence as well so i can see that that's a really good he's terrific bookseller's he's terrific recommendation on children and terrific. He's sappy, isn't not at all i mean no, there's sinister no. more often yes, yes. yeah <laughs> yes. well normally we would uh, i would give you a potted biography of ray bradbury but i'm not going to do that we have several clips from an early 60s interview with uh, bradbury conducted by a very specific interviewer and uh, Nikki, could you play clip one so we could hear Ray's CV? Are you a Ray Bradbury? Yes, sir. Where are you, where are you from, Ray? Uh, Waukegan, Illinois. Uh -huh. Waukegan, how yes. long ago? 35 years. 35? Yeah. Well, Jack Benny was born in Waukegan about that time. Did you, <laughs> Did you happen to know Jack? Uh, no, no, I, uh, I don't, I don't uh, know him, but my mother went to school with Jack. <laughs> By that dirty crook, huh? <laughs> What kind of a job do you have, Ray? I'm a writer. What kind of a writer? Pony Express, a motorcycle, or what? Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R. -E oh, it's very refreshing, a writer who can spell. <laughs> well, you certainly can't be much of a writer. What, what have you written besides notes to the milkman? Uh, well, a number of books. Uh, one called Fahrenheit 451, one called The Martian Chronicles, uh, another called The Golden Apples of the Sun, all from Doubleday. A lot of short stories for The New Yorker, The Post, Colliers, magazines of that sort. Well, you're a real successful writer, huh? Well, have you done any other writing besides science fiction and short stories? Yes, I've done one screenplay, the screenplay of Moby Dick for John Huston. Oh, really? Well, that was a whale of a job, wasn't it, huh? <laughs> cool. <laughs> I think Groucho Marx's underrated talents as an interviewer there. <laughs> well, no, we learned something, didn't we? We learned that it's not Fahrenheit 451, it's Fahrenheit 451, according that to the author. That was very disappointing to yeah, me. It's a massive error. Everybody knows this, that the uh, books do not. It should be Celsius 451 or 451. Fahrenheit 451 is not. Well, it doesn't make them warm. <laughs> so it should be 451 Celsius. Celsius yeah. Let's do the rewrite. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> exactly. The pedantically correct edition yeah. of uh, but that's uh, Celsius that's 451, <laughs> approximately. Do you, think he, do you think he did that just to, you know, put the Nazis off? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, when it was put to Bradbury that it, it was incorrect, he went, sure. Yeah, he didn't mind. I made it up. Yeah. I, I don't... write fiction. So he likes science, but he likes to sort of play with it. He's not bothered about being accurate. And, you know, if you think about the... The makeup of Mars and <laughs> and the people. Care. He's not interested in making Martians a, a plausible race on Mars and their cities to be realistic. Well, or did something. I mean did what so called hard SF even exist when he was writing? I shouldn't have thought it did really. I mean, you know, kind of later on you get people like Larry Niven who's really thinking hard about what the gravity of a neutron star would do to a spaceship. But you see, Bradbury is just like. He, I mean, he says, though, you know, specifically that he doesn't consider himself a, sci a science fiction writer, that he considered what he wrote as fantasy, which is interesting that he makes that distinction. I don't know whether that was just because sci-fi, SF, whatever it was called at that point, was seen as being a bit more down market, or whether it was... It, there is a really interesting point. His story's kind of... I mean, we would now call fantasy things that's, that have got wizards in it, but... The thing is, the place these stories come from is more exotic and far away i think than we think it is so we think of him as a writer of short stories the short story is a form that will be collected in books in fact of course his first short story is published in the mid-30s yeah and it's published in a magazine called imagination <laughs> and 
the the big publishers of his stories from the mid 30s to the mid 50s are amazing stories and weird tales magazines like that yeah bradbury's fascinating because he's a bridge between several things but one of the things he's a bridge between is from H.P. Lovecraft yeah. to the mm. era of cinema, for instance. Or, no, that's not quite right, to the era of comic books. Yeah. He is the guy who, who takes us from Cthulhu through <laughs> to Spider-Man yeah. and clearly is a big influence. I think Bradbury's greatest influence is, I mean, maybe as a writer, but more as somebody who invents a lot of big popular culture tropes from the second half of the 20th century. You know, there's, there's, I can see several real primal myths here for things that become whole genres in their own right. It's true. Mm. I mean, somebody said, you know, the best way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas. I think Bradbury was, that was Bradbury's approach to stories, wasn't it? Just write lots and lots and lots of stories. I have to say, the choosing of this book, I'd never read this collection before, Sam, so I'm intrigued as to why this selection, which is, I have to say, brilliant. But it also has the weirdest frame of any collection of stories, I think. It I does. Think. Well, we should talk about the form, yeah. shouldn't we? Because it is what, what gets called a kind of fix-up, I yeah. think, where... Let, let, me, let me read the blur. Yes, that's a good, good place to start. Yeah. And then we can try and explain the blur. <laughs> he was a big man, massive, and every inch of him was illustrated. <laughs> even, <laughs> even, that, even, even that is... Terrible blur. What was that word? <laughs> When his flesh twitched, the colours burned in three dimensions and the people moved, the tiny mouths flickered and the voices rose, small and muted. Sixteen illustrations, sixteen tales, brackets in this edition. (laughs) The first illustration quivered and came to life, dot, dot, dot. That's all it says. It sort of backs up what Sam was saying about being able to pull it off the shelf with no knowledge of even the genre, but it might be, and be captivated it, by the idea you were going to get all this. It yeah. just it just spoke David Lynch to me, that kind of strange yes. man of coming out of a landscape and then fuck. Yeah, and also he's he's kind of, you know, he's one bit of Bradbury, which is the, the, the carnival comes to town, the something wicked this way comes mm. thing, the yeah. scary, you know, alien strange presence blowing into, you know, the equivalent of walking in Illinois, and yet... The illustrated man claims in the introduction that he's got his tattoos from a time traveller. So it's instantly the sort of SF thing yeah. intruding into it. It's, you know, it's mashed up right at the root of it. Yeah, there is that feeling that it is kind of a grab bag of stuff yeah. right from the outset. To the extent that the, I think the story, the full story called The Illustrated Man doesn't appear in this edition of The Illustrated yeah, Man. It's, it's, it's not in. The Illustrated Man. <laughs> You're beginning to see the pattern. So there is Jen? a story called The Illustrated Man that isn't in. Great. There is. So, Jen, what were you saying earlier? You say a brilliant thing so, about Bradbury not so much being a writer as... Because I don't think I've ever read so much in such a concentrated period. What you notice is um, that the ideas and these themes, like you were saying, he's a writer with lots of ideas. I feel like I'm in like a Ray Bradbury brainstorm meeting with... Ray Bradbury talking to Ray Bradbury, yeah, yeah. and there's just lots of Ray Bradburys all, all just like whacking ideas on, on, a, so on, a, on a big whiteboard. Like being John Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. And, and what comes out is very much like a network of stories that you can connect. Like there's a there's the sort of little amoeba of an idea for Fahrenheit 451 in uh, in Usher two. In, in Usher two, yes, yeah. absolutely. And there's and there's other things like the Veld kind of crops up in various mm. bits and. pieces pieces of stories like this this playroom basically and there's these things all connect together and he, he often does it better i was just thinking i was just reading obviously marionette's ink in that which is a, which is a, a slightly better version of um i think of if you're going to do you know kind of ai humans humans being machines than the recent ian McEwan novel which i have a feeling McEwan must have read Marinette's ink because mm. there's a, the, the getting the smells of the he famously calls his his um, what have you called it robot so it smells like the back of an old television. Mm. Yeah. There is um, something that I also I'm really was struck by reading it again is how much sensory information yeah. there is. So yeah. for me, like lots of the and what makes it so easy to read, like it was easy to cram all this actually because the all the all the sort of 
um, scene setting is often all this like really quite psychedelic visual sensory stuff. It's not, they're not psychodramas. They're not really social or psychological actually, especially in like mm. the dinosaur stories. When... <laughs> Although there is, there is some, <laughs> there's the one where they're all falling through space. Oh, that kaleidoscope. Yeah, just That's amazing. such a great story. And it's such a brilliant idea. And then they're kind of having arguments and they're kind of making up I, as they as that, they confront their mortality. I think that's actually got my favourite line in the whole book in it. The, the setup is that the rocket has been flying through space, a lot of rockets in these stories. And <laughs> so many rockets. It's been hit by a meteor and it kind of explodes and they're all in their spacesuits. And they're all flying off in different directions according to the basic rules of particle physics. <laughs> but their communicators are still working. So, you know, one of them's heading for Mars, one of them's heading for, you know, deep space. One of them. And while they're still talking, they start arguing. And the captain, basically, <laughs> they get a bit shirty with the captain, probably because <laughs> he's crashed the spaceship. And the captain cut in, that's enough of that. We've got to figure out a way out of this. Captain, why don't you shut up, said Applegate. <laughs> what? You heard me, Captain. Don't pull your rank on me. You're 10,000 miles away by now. And let's not kid ourselves. As Stimson puts it, it's a long way down. See here, Applegate. Can it. This is a mutiny of one. I haven't a damn thing to lose. Your ship was a bad ship, and you were a bad captain. <laughs> and I hope you break when you hit the moon. <laughs> I think there is, a, as a writer, Bradbury has something of the quality of trollop about him, which is to say he didn't rewrite much. I very much get... Well, this is one of the things I find fascinating about him. He, yeah. is, a, he is a very American kind of... He described... He liked to describe himself as a magician. But he also, in interviews, described himself as a salesman in the terms that he would say, I'm selling you the idea. I'm really good at selling you the idea. And that is what he is. He's, he's that hard-working guy. He works every day, wrote every day. It's all part of his myth. I without get out there. Fail. Without fail. Without fail. I work fail. hard. I sell the story. But, you know, pitch, pitch, but pitch. That's always that haunting thing about Trollope, that, that he'd finish. He'd work for two hours every morning before he went to the post office for his day job. And if he finished one book 15 minutes before the two hours, he'd simply turn over the page and start the next novel. It's terrifying. <laughs> on that productivity, Michael Holroyd once told me the most terrifying thing about Bernard Shaw. He said Bernard Shaw, with his secretaries, because he was dictating, could actually write more words in a day than Michael Holroyd could read. And he said, if you, <laughs> if you, if you, if you were the biography and you have to do, you have to read everything, you just say, you know, it nearly broke. I mean, it was. That is a kind of Borges Tristram yeah, Shandy problem, Shandy, isn't yeah. it? You know? Jen, you were talking about what kind of writer was Bradbury, right? When we read him now, what kind of writer is he? This is Bradbury from 1989. He, he's just been asked to talk about what kind of writer he is. I don't care if the writer can't write. I don't give a damn what the style is. Teachers and librarians forget the function of literature. It's to pull us like taffy, to, to raise our souls, to make us want to live forever. Maybe I was born a freak. The more I see of life, the more I believe we are genetically set from the instant of birth to be what we are. But I believe I was born to be me. Do you ever feel you were born out of time? No, just perfect, absolute perfection. I've had the greatest life I've ever known. I can't think of anyone I've ever known more fortunate than myself because I have two gifts. Number one, the gift God gave me. Number two, having enough sense to use it. And I know a lot of people who have great gifts and don't use them, and that is a sin against God. Wow, he's a bit like listening to Willie Loman if, <laughs> if he was an author, a, a successful one. So, Jim, what was the story that particularly grabbed you in The Illustrated Man? Well, you know, it's possible to talk about lots of them, but the one that actually struck out as something slightly different somehow to me was The City, because it seemed to come from a lot more of a fantastical imaginary space, and maybe that's because I'm more used to the tropes of space and aliens and the mystery tropes that I recognise, you know, from, you know, Poe or um, H.G. Wells. Mm. But the city seemed something to have this kind of strange magic realism about it almost. Pitch, or maybe just magic, I don't know. Pitch the listeners the city. What is it? Well, it's a city that's been there for centuries, waiting to take revenge on men from Earth who decimated their planet. 20,000 years, isn't it? Yeah, and the the city is a living thing and it is uh, has complete sensory organs, but they are all operated 
in this kind of a, a sort of like almost steam power. Everything's sprocketed mm. and they're like aluminium and brass and it senses things. So I read a bit. The city waited with its windows and its black obsidian walls and its sky towers and its unpenanted turrets, with its untrod streets and its untouched doorknobs, with not a scrap of paper or a fingerprint upon it. The city waited while the planet arced in space, following its orbit about a blue-white sun, and the seasons passed from ice to fire and back to ice and then to green fields and yellow summer meadows. It was on a summer afternoon in the middle of the 20,000th year that the city ceased waiting. In the sky, a rocket appeared. The rocket soared over, turned, came back and landed in the shale meadow 50 yards from the obsidian wall. There were booted footsteps in the thin grass and calling voices from men within the rocket to men without. Ready? All right, men. Careful. Into the city. Jensen, you and Hutchinson patrol ahead. Keep a sharp eye. The city opened secret nostrils in its black walls and a steady suction vent deep in the body of the city drew storms of air back through channels, through thistle filters and dust collectors to a fine and tremblingly delicate series of coils and webs which glowed with silver light. Again and again, the immense suctions occurred. Again and again, the odours from the meadow were borne upon warm winds into the city. Fire odour, the scent of a fallen meteor, hot metal. A ship has come from another world. The brass smell, the dusty fire smell of burned powder, sulphur and rocket brimstone. This information, stamped on tapes, which sprocketed into slots, slid down through yellow cogs into further machines. Click, chack, chack, chack. A calculator made the sound of a metronome. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine men. An instantaneous typewriter inked this message on tape, which slithered and vanished. Clickety, click, chack, chack. The city awaited the soft tread of their rubberoid boots. The great city nostrils dilated again. The smell of butter in the city air from the stalking men faintly, the aura which wafted to the great nose, broke down into memories of milk, cheese, ice cream, butter, the effluvium of a dairy economy. Click, click. Careful, men. Jones, get your gun out. Don't be a fool. The city's dead. Why worry? You can't tell. Now, at the barking talk, the ears awoke, after centuries of listening to winds that blew small and faint, of hearing leaves strip from trees and grass grow softly in the time of melting snows. Now the ears oiled themselves in a self-lubrication, drew taut, great drums upon which the heartbeat of the invaders might pummel and thud delicately as the tremor of a gnat's wing. The ears listened, and the nose siphoned up great chambers of odour. The effluvium of a dairy economy. That's, <laughs> yes. pure, that's pure Lovecraft, actually. That's the sort of uh, slightly this convoluted overphrase. He, he, uh, he, you know, it's good writing. Come on. He can really do it when he wants to. Ooh, I think also he gets away sometimes with overdoing, you know, this amazing yeah. sexual description. You'll see a whole paragraph of it's a really lyrical riff on something. And I think that's a perfect conjunction of a writer who's trying to get up to the word count because he's selling writing by the yard in this old pulp kind of pulp magazine yeah. format. You know, yeah, he's yeah. got to get 3,000 words, so he'll do a paragraph description, but he's good enough to get away with it and it can be over the top, but you go, actually, this is kind of a good paragraph, even though you don't need it. And this is the story of um, the inaccurately titled Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> he wrote it as a long short story, as a 20,000-word short story, which he wrote in nine days and... A publisher, after it came out in one of those magazines, a publisher approached him and said, could you add 20,000 words to this and we'll put it out as a novel? He said, sure. And he took another nine days and he wrote 20,000 words more. And actually, I don't know how recently any of you have read Fahrenheit 451. I read it a couple of maybe last year. It's a brilliant, a fantastic example of a book, the central idea of which is so strong it's passed into history, allowing the actual problems with the book itself, which are that it was written in 18 days in two <laughs> chunks. And you can really tell. Mm. It almost doesn't matter because the, the, the power of the, of the myth in the 20th century is so strong, the cultural myth of it, that the, the book shouldn't be the secondary issue. And yet I'm wrong because 
it clearly was, it millions a, of people have read text, it and love it. I think, wasn't it, for a while? Yeah. I'm sure it was a sex text. At some but it's point. funny. It seems to be slightly like lots of Bradbury, slightly in eclipse. I mean, you think of the kind of yeah. the dystopias that we like to talk. You know, Handmaid's Tale has definitely come come up on the inside. Isn't probably joint number one now with 1984. You know, Brave New World's a bit behind that. And of the great dystopias, it feels like it's kind of lagging in fourth place. I think that's because so. I watched for this the 2018 remake of Fahrenheit 451 with Michael Shannon and Michael B. Jordan. And I would have to say that it is terrible. I love a terrible sci fi film, but the reason it doesn't stand up is because you realize watching it, they try to build the internet into this script. At one point, um, Michael B. Jordan smashes a computer monitor that is uploading books to an, an, a sort of internet. And actually, that just doesn't make sense because you can't eliminate things. So the idea of, like, taking books away and replacing them with TV and, the, and knowledge being outlawed like that, you know, is completely incomprehensible. At the end of the film, they send um, the entire sort of body of published, you know, all of the e-books, basically, in a capsule in a bird over to Canada, and you're like, but Canada has a copyright library, I'm sure. How do do they get it in the bird? Let's not talk about that. So data exists, and that kind of undermines the... When you kind of network information, like Fahrenheit 451 stops being as scary. And I read... It was actually... I really like reading terrible uh, sort of comments on terrible films... Uh, and I was reading the kind of user reviews of this film. And actually, one of them made a really good point that um, Fahrenheit 451, the terror and the horror of that dystopia is because you are reading a book. And huh. to read about yeah. a, a world where there are no books in a book, is that is the, like, terror. And once you put that in a film or try and add the internet, it completely loses its, like... what's so compelling about it. Which in turn shows you that, of course, Bradbury knew exactly what he was doing because he is interested, as you said, Jen, in the idea more than... You know, the idea of Mars rather than the hard sci-fi approach of of telling you, you know, what the... Who who wrote the the colour Mars novels? Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley, Stanley Robinson. Robinson. So they are the opposite. They are like that. We have to nail everything down because what you want is world building. Yeah. Bradbury's no, not no, really no, he's, interested he, in he's that. A, he's amazing improviser. He, didn't he say that uh, uh, that um, my stories run up and bite me in the leg, and I respond by writing them down. Everything that goes on during the bite, and when I finish, the idea gets up and runs off. <laughs> it does feel like that. Yeah. It does feel like that. He kind of he's possessed by something, and there is that. I, I, reading the stories, it reminded me of, of, of having to do, you know, creative writing s- stories at school where you were given a, you get a theme and then you write something, you try and put it. it. There is that kind of really simple energy to it. And I think he's sort of interested in archetypes as well, isn't yeah. he? In, 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 you know, and he's quite explicit in some of the stories. There's one in The Golden Apple of the Sun where, you know, the people who are going to Mars are essentially doing what Steinbeck's characters did or what the you know, great pioneers heading to the American West were doing. And, you know, he's really interested in these things. You know, Mars becomes a sort of place of abandoned cities and he's very big and resonant, I think, on that kind of these untenanted mm. spaces that are sometimes sometimes get their revenge, like the city. Yeah, or sometimes he's so such... I feel like all of those themes, uh, there's all this, this like, sort of um, real scepticism about colonial explorer practices however you want to characterize it like you know half of the martian chronicles is like failures to populate and the absolute human disasters that occur when people new people go to a place and try and take it over and And i feel it up yeah i mean he steals the hg wells you know um war of the worlds device in the martian chronicles doesn't he where they turn up and they go, well, there were some people living here, Martians living here until quite recently, but it seems they've all been wiped out by chicken pox. Yeah. You know? the, the, other, the other foot is a, good, is a really good uh, yeah. a sort of reverse colonialism in this as well, the, 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 the white guy spaceship arriving. and The Martian Chronicles is my, uh, is my absolute favourite and uh, that's partly because I'm really fascinated by it as a book. It's a brilliant example of what is it? Is it a collection of short stories? 
is it a novel? I mean, these things that people are talking about right now in terms of collections of short stories. Are they novels? Are they short stories? You know, the Martian Chronicles is clearly on one level a load of stories about Mars that he had <laughs> lying around because he'd written them over ten years. But what he does is he puts them together in a specific order. He reworks some of the content so that there's a flow through which is incredibly satisfying. Uh, and you really feel you go somewhere through the book as you read through the book. The other reason I really love the Martian Chronicles, and you, both our guests are too young to remember, and our producer, I suspect, are too young to remember this. But do you remember when television was so... Remember, there were only three channels. Yes. And One of which you weren't allowed season, to watch. The big season would start when the summer holidays were over in September. And I remember being on holiday with my mum and dad in Cornwall and having to sit in the TV lounge in the hotel because we there weren't TVs in the room because it was the premiere of BBC One's big Saturday night American series for 1980, which was The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury starring Rock Hudson. Wow. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. Amazing. And actually, it's not... I mean, looking at it now, there are, there are issues with it. But, it. but like the book, it's kind of charming now. It's, there's a kind of retro-futurism about the TV as much as there is about the book. They're just bringing you different eras. There's an amazing... Did you? Um, so something I came across when doing research was that um, Borges wrote an introduction to a Spanish edition... Um, and of the Martian Chronicles. Brilliant. And there's this incredible <laughs> quote, which is, which totally struck me. And I'm just going to find it in my notes because it's relevant. So Borges says, what has this man from Illinois done, I ask myself, when closing the pages of this book, that episodes from the conquest of another planet fill me with horror and loneliness? And to me, mm. that is just like absolutely an encapsulation of these, mm. that, such like such loneliness in the Martian Chronicles. Sam, you were talking about Margaret Atwood, and Atwood's written several times about Ray Bradbury. And this is one of the great things about Margaret Atwood. I, I think it, when people would say to her, "But The Handmaid's Tale is a sci-fi novel," she'd go, "Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I love sci-fi, and I love Ray Bradbury." And she's written several essays about Bradbury and introductions to specific editions. She might even have written... I know you've got a story there that is this... You've got a story called Skeleton there. Yeah. So why have you chosen this story? Well, I mentioned Skeleton. Skeleton isn't actually in The Illustrated Man, but I had to go and find it on the internet because it was one of those... One of the stories when I originally read it that absolutely kind of freaked me the fuck (laughs) out. Um, And it's got quite a lot of Bradbury's... You know, there is a sort of undercurrent of existential horror in some of the best of Bradbury's stuff. And this, you know, there's that Elliot line about Webster seeing the skull beneath the skin. Mm. Um, And this is a story that really kind of literalises that. And it's this guy who goes to his doctor because he's got kind of aches and pains and his doctor's not doing anything for him and says he's a hypochondriac. And he becomes convinced that his skeleton is somehow at war with the rest of his body. Mm. And he sort of noticed that his skeleton is in him and that people around him have skeletons. And there's a set of, well, read a little bit of it, um, which, you know, he's in the process of freaking about, out about his skeleton. He's like, does everyone else's kneecap move like this? You know, what's this thing encasing my lungs? And he's, and then he's trying to live his normal life at the same time. So, you know, darling, will you come in and meet the ladies? Called his wife's sweet, clear voice. Mr. Harris stood upright. His skeleton which is all in capital letters in this edition, was holding him upright. This thing inside him, this invader, this horror, was supporting his arms, legs and head. It was like feeling someone just behind you who shouldn't be there. With every step he took, he realised how dependent he was on this other thing. Darling, I'll be with you in a moment, he called weakly. To himself, he said, come on now, brace up. You've got to go back to work tomorrow and Friday you've got to make that trip to Phoenix. Quite a drive. Over 600 miles. Got to be in shape for that trip or you won't get Mr. Crowden to put his money into your ceramics business. Chin up now. Five minutes later, he stood among the ladies being introduced to Mrs. Withers, Mrs. Abelmatt and Miss Curthy, all of whom had skeletons inside them that took it very calmly <laughs> because nature had carefully clothed the bare nudity of clavicle, tibia and femur with breasts, thighs, calves, with coiffure 
and eyebrow satanic, with bee-stung lips, and Lord, shouted Mr. Harris inwardly, when they talk or eat part of their skeleton shows, their teeth. <laughs> I never thought of that. Excuse me, he said, and ran from the room only in time to drop his lunch among the petunias over the garden balustrade. You know, I was saying earlier about Bradbury inventing all sorts of things for which he doesn't get credit. Now, there is, a, I'm sure there are other examples, Edgar Allan Poe, we could find an example there, I'm sure. You know, that's, that is body horror. That is it the pre-Cronenberg, right? That's what that is. But it's also funny. It's also a comic short story at the same time. Well, it's a bit of a spoiler, but this is what's completely haunted me, is this slightly shonky doctor, he bone specialist, he finds, you know, <laughs> says, I, I can treat you, but you have to be ready. And he's like, I'm not ready. And then he comes and he goes, I'm ready, I'm ready, treat me. And the guy reaches into his mouth and something kind of awful bone-cracking happens. It's quite unspecific. <laughs> but at the end, his wife's coming back to the house and she walks in. Just as she's arriving at the house, she sees this sort of slightly sinister-looking doctor leaving and he's, he's kind of nibbling on this white flute and sucking something out of the middle of it and then starts playing a tune on this bone flute as the wife goes in and starts screaming because there's a huge boneless jelly on the ground which greets her by name. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and that bone flute has stuck with me. My, my theory on this story, I hadn't read it till you sent it, is that Bradbury wrote this. The, the description of his discomfort reads exactly like a really bad hangover to me. <laughs> you know, that feeling that, oh, my God, I'm moving and this is sickening. You know, it's almost like it's almost like Sartre was nausea. He's disgusted at your being and nothing's moving right. The thing that I find that I found coming back to it older, no longer being a like teenager and not noticing this stuff, was how no, I don't know if anyone even sleeps in the same bed in these stories. Mm. I feel like they're all in twin beds like Morecambe and Wise. And the like the romances are kind of non-existent. And the only thing that is, like we talked about, he can imagine all these different things, but what he never, ever imagines is any sort of evolution of the kind of 2.4 Midwest suburban family. One of the things I noticed is, like, there are no women in any of the rockets. They're all just <laughs> these squads of men... And I have never noticed that before. And obviously, like, the conversations about gender balance are, um, did not exist when I started reading Ray Bradbury. And now I notice, like, oh, like, I'm not a part of Ray Bradbury's world. I actually Quite don't think I Quite a few interfering wives, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't care apart from the, like, also there's a proto pixie dream girl in, in <laughs> yeah. 451 she is yeah, yeah. Pr a prototype yeah. of that character trope yeah. Yeah. but then you've got interfering wives that get turned yeah. into robots i don't think this excludes anything about him he all these books were written in like the early 50s mm. that is so early for some of these ideas to be knocking around and also i i think we should say because it's I, I, it's the most fascinating thing about him as a writer for me is how the books kind of fit into genres and don't yeah. and also bleed into one another but aren't copies of one another. So The Martian Chronicles is sci-fi in a different way to Fahrenheit 451, but this is by the same guy who within three years has written Dandelion Wine, which yeah. which is a, a, a very lyrical Mark Twain-like American memoir. And then he kind of bashes those two books together and he gets Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is like Dandelion Wine but retold with a horror, horror perspective. He, he, he strikes me in the best way as it's almost automatic writing. It's almost picking images that spoke to him, yeah. words that spoke to him. I think this is why he links to early Ballard, actually. He reminds yeah, yeah. me a bit of Ballard because he's got that thing of he's got a set of images or ideas on which he obsesses and which he works variations on constantly to do with childhood, to do with yeah. a kind of mythical Illinois landscape, to do with the sort of untenanted Mars, to do with, you know, rocket ships. There's a lovely line about, in one of the stories, that, you know, the rockets hanging in the air like darning needles, which... Mm, yes. I don't think has anything to do with physics as we'd understand it, mm. but it's a hell of an image, you know. He's and if you didn't like it, Ray's got another one for you <laughs> coming right up. <laughs> the thing about Bradbury, which he, he he gets away with, I think, 
he can get deep really quickly. And the story I think we all love, which is no particular night or morning, mm. but with the tortured man Hitchcock having a breakdown. I love this. He uh, Clemens is saying, you should get your mind off this stuff, Hitchcock. And he says, I, I can't. All the gaps and spaces. And that's how I got to thinking about the stars. I thought how I'd like to be in a rocket ship, in space, in nothing, in nothing, going on into nothing, with just a thin something, a thin edge shell of metal holding me, going on away from all the somethings with gaps in them that couldn't prove themselves. I knew then that the only happiness for me was space. And then he says, well, you should go and see a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good advice. Yeah. Um, that evocation, it's like yeah. the pure horror of open space. Of the open space. Well, it seems ridiculous as we have a foghorn specialist here <laughs> not to ask whether that has any connection with foghorns, does That's it, Jen? you ask. Yeah, I do think it does because lots of, like as we talked about, lots of Bradbury's work is about loneliness and that horror of the loneliness of space is exactly what's this idea of these tropes. The horror of loneliness is in the foghorn, which is about a huge uh, prehistoric beast that has been under the sea and it is awoken by the lighthouse and the foghorn, which it mistakes for another of its kind. Mm. And shall I read a tiny bit oh, of yeah, it to end? We can yeah, close yeah. on the foghorn. The foghorn blew and the monster answered. A cry came across a million years of water and mist, a cry so anguished and alone that it shuddered in my head and my body. The monster cried out at the tower. The foghorn blew. The monster roared again. The foghorn blew. The monster opened its great toothed mouth and the sound that came from it was the sound of the foghorn itself, lonely and vast and far away, the sound of isolation, a viewless sea, a cold night, a partness. That was the sound. Great. Brilliant. Right, I'm afraid that's, that's it. The moon is up. We can see a small town up ahead and we're not looking behind us. Thanks to Sam and Jen for accompanying us on this trip to the stars, to our stellar producer, Nikki Birch, and to Unbound, the mothership carrying us home. You can download all 95 examples of the effluvia of our dairy economy, <laughs> plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. And you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. And before you do that, why not leave us a review on iTunes or whatever iTunes becomes? Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.